Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy. And today, I'm really happy to have on a member of the scientific committee for the upcoming Fourth World Congress of Sports Physical Therapy, which will be taking place in Denmark at the end of August. If you want to learn more about that or sign up, which I highly suggest you do, click on the link in the podcast notes over at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. So today I'm really happy to have on the program Professor Michael Ratliff. He's a professor at Center for General Practice in Alberg and Department of Health, Science, and Technology at Alberg University. He's the head of musculoskeletal health and implementation. The research program is cross-disciplinary and includes researchers with a background in general practice, rheumatology, orthopedic surgery, physiotherapy, sports science, health economics, and human-centered informatics. He is the head of the research group OptiYouth at the Research Unit for General Practice. Their aim is to improve the health and function of adolescents through research. So today, we talk about his role at the upcoming WCSPT. So he's going to be wearing a variety of hats, and he gives us a sneak peek into his talk, which, I mean, just cannot be missed. We also talked about creating tools for clinicians to educate their patient, his uh, past research, where he sees research and physiotherapy heading and how much it's changed over the past 10 years, and of course... He uh, gives us a sneak peek into some of his upcoming research, which he will share at the Congress in Denmark. So click on the link in the podcast show notes, sign up for the Congress, because you'll get to hear Professor Ratliff's, uh, uh, which is sure to be a really great presentation along with many, many others. We've had a couple of interviews already from several presenters, and we will continue having more interviews with presenters as the months go on leading up to the Congress in August. So a big thank you to Professor Michael Ratliff, and everyone enjoy today's episode. Hello, Professor Ratliff. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today to talk a little bit more about your role at the Fourth World Congress of Sports Physical Therapy in Denmark, August 26th to the 27th. So as we were talking before we went on the air, we were saying, man, you're wearing a bunch of hats during this Congress, one of which is part of the organizing committee. So my first question to you is, as a member of the organizing committee, what were your goals and what are you hoping to achieve with this Congress? I think my, my role is primarily within the scientific committee. And one of the things we discussed very, very early on was this, like, you know, when you go for a conference, you go up to a conference, you hear a bunch of interesting talks and you feel like I'm motivated, I'm listening, I'm taking in new things. But then Monday morning, when you see the next patient, it, it's not always that all the interesting stuff that you saw is actually applicable to my patient Monday morning. So we wanted to try and emphasize more, how can we use this conference as a way to translate science into practice? So the whole program and the 
like the presentations will be more about clinical applicability and less about more p-values and research methodology. So not that the research is not sound, but there'll be more focus on how can we actually apply it in the context that we're working. That's why also we had the, the main title of translating research into practice, which I think will be a, hopefully a cornerstone that people will see, well, if there's a really interesting talk about, it could be overused uh, injuries in kids, which will be a lecture that I'm having, then there'll also be a practical workshop afterwards to kind of use that, what's been presented, and then really drill down on how we can use it in, uh, in clinical practice. So the goal is to, to, to get people to reflect, enjoy, network, but also take a lot of the things and think, wow, this is something that I can uh, use next Monday for clinical practice. And aside from a lot of lectures and talks, you've also got an informatics competition. Um, and so could you explain that a little bit and why you decided to bring that into the Congress? Yeah, so this was a major, not a debate, but a, an interesting discussion on how we can, um, even in the early phases of the conference, when people submit an abstract, make sure that the abstract can actually also reach more uh, end users, target audiences for that case. So we decided that people actually had to submit an infographic together with their um, the abstract. So normally you send in like 250 words for a conference, but uh, for this conference, we wanted them to submit the abstract, but also the visual infographic to go along with and then pick, well, am I making an infographic that is tailored to patients? Is it a patient aid that I'm trying to make? Is it something that's aimed at other researchers or is it clinicians? So they had to tick off which box am I infographic actually intended for? So when the audience or the participants come and join the conference, they can actually take these infographics for those that want to print them, they can use in the clinic afterwards. Just another layer of trying to make some of this research more easily communicated to the audience, but also the things that can be used in clinical practice. Like some of the people that submitted abstract have some really, really nice infographics that I expect will be printed and hang on a, on a few clinic doors um, around the world afterwards, I hope. And when it comes to dissemination of research and information from the clinician to the patient or even to the wider public, where do you think clinicians and researchers get stuck? Like, where is the disconnect between that dissemination of information as we, the information as we see, and by the time it gets to the consumer or to, let's say, a mass media outlet, it's like, what happened? Yeah, ooh, that's a big, um, a big question because it's it's almost like why why are we not better at implementing new research into our clinical practice? And I think there's heaps of of different barriers. We've we've done a couple of studies. Something new is also in the pipeline where we look specifically at the the physio context, and we can see that there's barriers in terms of understanding the research. That's actually one of the the major barriers that. The clinicians out there have a really hard time both finding the evidence, appraising the evidence, and also actually understanding is this good or bad science. And then you have the whole time constraints out in clinical practice because who's going to pay you to sit and use two hours on reading this paper? And remember, this is just one paper on ACL injuries, but in my clinical practice, I see a gazillion different different things. So how am I going to keep up with the with the evidence? 
Is it intended that I'm reading original literature or how am I going to, to keep up with it? So I think there's a lot of different uh, barriers, but at least one of the ways I think we can overcome some of these barriers is that researchers climb out of the ivory tower and think of, is there other ways that we can communicate research, evidence synthesis? It could be infographics. It could be sort of like decision aids for clinical practice. At least that's one of the routes we're taking in, in terms of also the talk I'm giving at the conference that we're trying to think of, can we somehow develop um, aids that will support clinical practice, something that's aimed at the physiotherapist, something that's aimed at the patient that will sort of make it easier to deliver evidence-based practice. So we've done um, one, one tool that's being developed at the moment is called the, the MACNI, which is something that can assist clinicians in the diagnosis, the communication of how do you communicate to kids about chronic knee pain? How do I make sure that they have um, the right expectation for what my management can be and how can we engage in a, in a shared decision-making process? And we have a few other things uh, in the pipeline as well, where we want to, to, to build something, build something practical that you can take and use in, in clinical practice to, to support you in delivering good quality care, because just publishing papers is not going to change clinical practice, I think. Yeah, and publishing papers, which are sometimes wonderful papers, but if they're not getting out to the clinicians, they're certainly not going to get out to the patients and to people, uh, sort of uh, the mass population. I completely agree. Um, it's, um, I think a bigger discussion. I'm, I'm really focused on how to reach clinicians because I see the clinicians as the entry point to delivering care to patients and parents and, and the surrounding, uh, surrounding community. But if you think of like wider public health interventions, we have the same problem uh, as well. And also we create this sort of like, no, there's an inequality in healthcare, but that's another line. All other uh, can of worms. Yeah, we could do a whole yeah. series of podcasts on that. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I agree with you that it, it needs to come from the clinicians. So creating these tools to help clinicians better educate their patients, which in turn really becomes their community. Because there's yeah. a lot a clinician can do outside of just a one-on-one -on -one interaction with the patient. And so having the right tools can make a big difference. Like in, um, if you look at a patient that comes to you for an ACL injury or long-standing musculoskeletal complaint, they're going to spend maybe 0.1% of their time together with you and 99.9% .9 they're out on their own. And I think it's important that we, when we're one-on-one -on -one with them, sort of like make them develop the competencies so they can do the right decisions for their health in the 99.9% .9 of the time that they're out there alone when they're not with, uh, with us. So I completely agree with you that there's a lot of things we can do to make them more competent in thriving despite of knee pain or shoulder pain or whatever it might, uh, it might be. And I think that's one of the most important tasks, I think, for us as clinicians is to think about the everyday lives they have to live when they leave us and say, see you next time. Yeah. And to be able to clearly communicate uh, whatever their diagnosis by, might be or exercise program or, or any number of, of tens of thousands of biopsychosocial uh, impacts that are happening with this person. 
because oftentimes, and, and I know I've been guilty of this in the past, I'm sure other therapists would agree that they've, this has happened to them as well, is you explain everything to the patient and then they come back and it's, they got nothing, zero. And it might be because you're not disseminating the information to them in a way that's helpful for them or in a way that's conducive with their learning style. So having different tools, like you said, maybe it's an infographic that the patient can look at and be like, oh, I get it now. So having a lot of variety makes a huge difference. And I think you touch on a super important uh, point there that patients are very different, that they have different learning styles, they have different needs. And I think it's, it's our role to understand the needs of the individual patient and make up something that really meets those uh, needs. So more about listening, asking questions and, and less about thinking that we have the solution uh, to it. Because I think within musculoskeletal uh, health or care, whatever we call it, some clinicians would use their words to communicate a message. That might be good for some. Other patients would prefer to have a, a folder or a leaflet. Others would say, I want a phone. I want an app on my phone, something that's like learning on demand, because at least that's something we see regularly now that we have the older population that wants a piece of paper. We have the younger population that wants to have something that they can sort of like rely on when they're out there on their own and want advice on how do I manage this challenging situation to get some good advice when you're not there, when I'm all on my own. So it's all different. Yeah. And I love those examples. I use apps quite frequently and I had a patient just the other day say, oh, my husband put this, the app that, that you use, because I was giving her PDFs and she's like, oh, my husband put the app on my phone. Now it's so much easier. So now I know exactly what to do if I have five minutes in my day. So it just depends. And I think the whole like mobile health industry, there's a lot of potential there, but I also see at least from a Danish context that there's a lot of uh, apps that is very limited. It's sort of not, not developed on a sound evidence base, or it's just sort of like um, a container of videos with exercises. And I think there's a huge potential in like thinking of how can we do more with this? How can we make sure that it's not just a delivery vehicle for a new exercise, but it's actually a delivery vehicle for improving the competencies for self-management for individuals. I think there's, yeah, I'm looking forward to the next few years on to see how this whole field develops because I think there's a really big uh, yeah, potential in it. Yeah, not like you're not doing enough already, but you know, maybe you've just got your next project now. <laughs> like you're not busy enough already. So as we, as you alluded to uh, a few minutes ago, you've got a couple of different uh, talks, you're chairing. So you've got a lot going on at the World Congress. So do you want to break down, uh, give maybe a little sneak peek? You don't have to give it all away. We want people to go to the conference to listen to your talks. But if you want to break down, maybe take a, a one or two of your topics that you'll be speaking on and uh, give us a sneak peek. I think um, the talk that'll be most interesting for me to deliver and hopefully also to listen to is, is the talk that I'm giving on um, overuse injuries in, uh, in adolescence, because I think it's, we haven't had a lot of like conferences in the past couple of years. So it'll be one of these talks that'll be meaty 
in terms of uh, of new data and some of the things I'm most interested to go out and present is all the qualitative research we've done on understanding adolescents and their parents in terms of what are the challenges they experience, how can we help them, and also we've done a lot of qualitative works on what are the challenges that physios experience when dealing with kids with long-standing pain complaints. We've developed some new tools that can sort of like help this process to improve care for all these uh, young people. And I really look forward trying to, uh, yeah, to hear what people think of, uh, of our ideas and, and the practical tools that we've, uh, that we've developed. So that's at least one of the talks that's going to be quite interesting. Hopefully also we're going to uh, actually have the data from our 10-year follow-up. Of, uh, so I have a cohort that I started during my PhD they were like 504 kids with uh, with knee pain. And now I've followed them prospectively for 10 years. In this time period, I've gotten a bit more gray hair and gray beard. But this wealth of data that comes from following more than 500 kids for 10 years with chronic knee pain is going to be really, really interesting. And uh, we're going to be finished with that. So I'm also giving a, a sneak peek on unpublished data on the long-term prognosis of uh, adolescent knee pain in, at the conference. So that's going to be the world's premiere for, uh, for that big data set as well. Amazing. And as you're talking about going through some of the qualitative research that you've done, and you had mentioned there were some challenges from the physio side and from the child side and the patient and the child's parent side, can you, uh, give us maybe one challenge that's kind of stuck out to you that was like, boy, this is really a challenge that is maybe one of the biggest impediments uh, in working with this population. I think um, I think there's multiple. One thing that I'm really interested in these in this moment is the whole level of like diagnostic uncertainty in kids. Because one of the things we've understood is that if the kids and the parent don't really understand why they have knee pain, what's the name of the knee pain, it becomes this cause of them seeking care around the healthcare system on who can actually help me, who can explain my pain. So, so at the moment, we're trying to do a lot of things on how we can reduce this, what would you call diagnostic uncertainty and provide credible explanations to the kids and then trying to develop credible explanations for both kids and parents. That's actually not an easy task because what is a credible explanation of what patellofemoral pain is when we don't have a good understanding of the underlying pathophysiology. So there we're doing a lot of work on combining both clinical expertise, what the patient needs, what we know from the literature. And then we're trying to sort of iterate and test these credible explanations with the kids. And um, yeah, at the conference, we'll have the first draft of these, what we call credible explanations. So that's going to be at least one barrier, one challenge that I hope that some of the practical tools we've developed can actually uh, help. Well, I, for one, am looking forward to that because there is, it is so challenging when you're working with children, adolescents, and their parents who are sort of call it doctor shopping, you know, where you're, like you said, you're going around to multiple different practitioners just with their fingers crossed, hoping that someone can explain why their child is in pain or not performing or not able to you know, be a part of their peer group or, or, or engage in what normal kids would, would generally do. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, I'm definitely looking forward to that. So, uh, what, give us one other sneak peek. Cause I know you've got, uh, the, 
you're also chairing um, a talk on the first day. But what else? I shouldn't say I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. What else are you looking forward to? Even maybe if it's not your talk, are you looking forward to um, maybe some other presentations? I'm actually looking forward to um, to the competitions we have as well, because I've had a sneak peek of some of the research that's been submitted as abstracts and the quality is super high. So both the oral presentations, but also the presentation that the best infographics, because they'll also get time to actually be on the big screen and present their infographic. And I look forward to see how people can communicate the messages from these amazing infographics. And I think these two competitions are going to be, uh, yeah, to be a blast and going to be really, really fun to um, to look at and amazing research as well. So I really look forward to these two uh, events as well. And then, then, of course. Oh, no, go ahead. No, I was just talking about it. I look forward to meeting with friends and new friends and be out talking to uh, to people once again in, in beautiful uh, Nuborg in Denmark in the middle of, uh, of summer. It, it's hard to beat Denmark in the summer. We don't have a lot of good weather, but Denmark in August is just brilliant. Yes, I've, I've only been there in February, so I am definitely looking forward to, um, to Denmark in August as well, because I have only been there for Sports Congress when it's a little chilly and a little damp. So summer yeah. sounds just perfect. Um, and I have one more question, um, just kind of piggybacking uh, off of your comments on the amazing research within these competitions. And since, you know, you have been in the research field, let's say for a decade plus, right? Getting your PhD a decade ago. Um, how have you seen physio research change and morph over the past decade? Have you seen just it, better research coming from specifically from the physio world? I think it's the first time someone said it's actually more than a decade. So, but um, that gives me a time perspective. But yeah, I've actually seen that. My perception is that physiotherapy research in general, but also sports physiotherapy research went from being um, published in smaller journals, we published in our own journals to now there's multiple examples of sport physios performing really, really nice trials that have reached the best medical journals that have informed clinical practice. So I think we see that there's both, uh, there's more good research basically out there. And I also see that we have moved from like a biomechanical paradigm to being more user or patient centered. We see more qualitative research. We see that physiotherapists, sport physiotherapists, they sort of have a, a larger breadth of different research designs they use to tackle the research. I think like looking even at the ACL injuries, if you go back 10 years in time, looking at the very biomechanically oriented research that was primarily also driven by orthopedic surgeons to a large extent. Now to today where physios have done amazing research, they understand all the, the fear of re-injury. They're trying to do very broad rehabilitation programs, ensuring that people don't return to sport too rapidly and un also understanding why they shouldn't um, return back to sport and now developing tools that you can use when you sit with a patient to try and, and educate them on what are the phases we need to go through the next 
nine to 12 months before you can return to sport and so on. So I think I'm just impressed by, by the research. And when I see the, even the younger people in my group now, they start at a completely different level mm. when they start their PhD compared to what we did. So I can only imagine that the quality is going to, uh, to improve over the years as well, because they're much more talented. They are still hardworking and they have a larger evidence base to sort of like stand on. And they already from the beginning see the benefit of these interdisciplinary uh, collaborations with the whole medical field and who else is, is relevant to, uh, to include in, in these collaborations. So uh, yeah, the future is bright. I see. Yeah. I, and I would agree with that. And now as we kind of start to wrap things up here, where can people find you? So, um, website, social media, tell the people where you're at. So I think if you just type in my name on Google, there'll be a university profile at the very top where you can see all my contact information. Otherwise, just uh, feel free to reach out on LinkedIn or Twitter, search for my name and um, you'll find me. I try to be quite rapid and respond to the direct messages when, uh, when possible, at least. Perfect. And we'll have all the links to that in the show notes at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. So uh, you can just go there, click on, it'll take you right to all of your links. So um, is there anything that you want to kind of leave the listeners with when it comes to the World Congress of Sports Physiotherapy or Physical Therapy? Sorry. Be careful not to miss it. It's going to be one of these conferences with uh, a magical blend of practical application of science. It's going to be a terrific program in terms of possibilities to, to network and engage in physical activity, whatever it's running or mountain biking and with an amazing conference dinner as well. So I think it's, it's at least going to be one of, uh, one of the highlights uh, for me this year. So, um, and I think, the whole atmosphere around this conference is also that if you come there as a clinician, you don't know anybody, that people will be open and welcoming and happy to engage in conversation. There's no speakers that wouldn't be super happy to grab a beer or a walk to, uh, to discuss some of the, the ideas that's been presented at the conference. So I think it's going to be quite, um, quite good. Yeah. So come with an open mind, come with uh, a lot of questions and come with your workout clothes. <laughs> is 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 Brilliant. what i'm hearing yes definitely definitely and final question and it's one that i ask everyone is knowing where you are now in your life and in your career what advice would you give to your younger self and you can pick whatever time period your younger self is so i think in if i had to give myself one advice when i was in my uh, sort of like mid phd time coming towards the end I would say to myself that um, it's okay to say no. You have to make sure to say yes to the right things because it's very easy to say yes to everything. And then you create these peak stress periods for yourself that would prohibit you from, from doing things that is value being with friends or family and so on. You don't have to say yes to everything because there will be multiple opportunities afterwards. So practice in saying no and do it in a, in a polite way. People actually have a lot of respect for people that say, no, I don't have a time or I'm, I'm going to invest my time on this because this is what I really think 
is going to to change the field and this is my vision so so young michael please please practice in saying no I love that advice. Thank you so much. So Michael, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And again, just as a reminder, I know we've said this before, but the World Congress of Sports Physical Therapy will be in Denmark, August 26th and 27th of this year, 2022. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast and thank you for all of your hard work in getting, uh, making this conference the best it can be. Thank you, Karen. Thank you for the invitation to the podcast. Absolutely. And everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. Have a great couple of days and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.